Chapter Twenty One of the Iron Heel by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Matt Saw. The Roaring Abysmal Beast. During the long period of our stay in the refuge, we were kept closely in touch with what was happening in the world without, and we were learning thoroughly the strength of the oligarchy with which we were at war. Out of the flux of transition, the new institutions were forming more definitely and taking on the appearance and attributes of permanence. The oligarchs had succeeded in devising a governmental machine, as intricate as it was vast, that worked, and this despite all our efforts to clog and hamper. This was a surprise to many of the revolutionists. They had not conceived it possible. Nevertheless, the work of the country went on. The men toiled in the mines and fields, perforce they were no more than slaves. As for the vital industries, everything prospered. The members of the great labor castes were contented and worked on merrily. For the first time in their lives they knew industrial peace. No more were they worried by slack times, strike and lockout, and the union label. They lived in more comfortable homes and in delightful cities of their own, delightful compared with the slums and ghettos in which they had formerly dwelt. They had better food to eat, less hours of labor, more holidays, and a greater amount and variety of interests and pleasures. And for their less fortunate brothers and sisters, the unfavored laborers, the driven people of the abyss, they cared nothing. An age of selfishness was dawning upon mankind. And yet this is not altogether true. The labor castes were honeycombed by our agents, men whose eyes saw beyond the belly need the radiant figure of liberty and brotherhood. Another great institution that had taken form and was working smoothly was the mercenaries, this body of soldiers had been evolved out of the old regular army, and was now a million strong, to say nothing of the colonial forces. The mercenaries constituted a race apart. They dwelt in cities of their own, which were practically self-governed, and they were granted many privileges. By them a large portion of the perplexing surplus was consumed. They were losing all touch and sympathy with the rest of the people, and, in fact, were developing their own class morality and consciousness. And yet we had thousands of our agents among them. Note. The mercenaries, in the last days at the Iron Heel, played an important role. They constituted the balance of power in the struggles between the labor castes and the oligarchs, and now to one side and now to the other, through their strength according to the play of intrigue and conspiracy. The oligarchs themselves were going through a remarkable, and it must be confessed, unexpected development. As a class, they disciplined themselves. Every member had his work to do in the world, and this work he was compelled to do. There were no more idle, rich, young men. Their strength was used to give united strength to the oligarchy. They served as leaders of troops and as lieutenants and captains of industry. They found careers in applied science, and many of them became great engineers. They went into the multitudinous divisions of the government, took service in the colonial possessions, and by tens of thousands went into the various secret services. They were, I may say, apprenticed to education, to art, to the church, to science, to literature— and in those fields they served the important function of moulding the thought processes of the nation in the direction of the perpetuity of the oligarchy. They were taught, and later they in turn taught, that what they were doing was right. They assimilated the aristocratic idea from the moment they began, as children, to receive impressions of the world. The aristocratic idea was woven into the making of them until it became bone of them and flesh of them. They looked upon themselves as wild animal trainers, rulers of beasts. From beneath their feet rose always the subterranean rumbles of revolt. Violent death ever stalked in their midst. 
Bomb and knife and bullet were looked upon as so many fangs of the roaring abysmal beast they must dominate if humanity were to persist. They were the saviors of humanity, and they regarded themselves as heroic and sacrificing laborers for the highest good. They, as a class, believed that they alone maintained civilization. It was their belief that if ever they weakened, the great beast would engulf them, and everything of beauty and wonder and joy and good in its cavernous and slime-dripping maw. Without them, anarchy would reign, and humanity would drop backward into the primitive night out of which it had so painfully emerged. The horrid picture of anarchy was held always before their child's eyes, until they, in turn, obsessed by this cultivated fear, held the picture of anarchy before the eyes of the children that followed them. This was the beast to be stamped upon, and the highest duty of the aristocrat was to stamp upon it. In short, they alone, by their unremitting toil and sacrifice, stood between weak humanity and the all-devouring beast. And they believed it, firmly believed it. I cannot lay too great stress upon this high ethical righteousness of the whole oligarch class. This has been the strength of the Iron Heel, and too many of the comrades have been slow or loath to realize it. Many of them have ascribed the strength of the Iron Heel to its system of reward and punishment. This is a mistake. Heaven and hell may be the prime factors of zeal in the religion of a fanatic. But for the great majority of the religious, heaven and hell are incidental to right and wrong. Love of the right, desire for the right, unhappiness with anything less than the right, in short, right conduct, is the prime factor of religion. And so with the oligarchy. Prisons, banishment, and degradation, honors and palaces and wonder cities are all incidental. The great driving force of the oligarchs is the belief that they are doing right. Never mind the exceptions, and never mind the oppression and injustice in which the Iron Heel was conceived. All is granted. The point is that the strength of the oligarchy today lies in its satisfied conception of its own righteousness. Note. Out of the ethical incoherency and inconsistency of capitalism, the oligarchs emerged with a new ethics, coherent and indefinite, sharp and severe as steel, the most absurd and unscientific, and at the same time the most potent ever possessed by any tyrant class. The oligarchs believed their ethics, in spite of the fact that biology and evolution gave them the lie, and because of their faith, for three centuries they were able to hold back the mighty tide of human progress— a spectacle, profound, tremendous, puzzling to the metaphysical moralist, and one that to the materialist is the cause of many doubts and reconsiderations. For that matter, the strength of the revolution during these frightful twenty years has resided in nothing else than the sense of righteousness. In no other way can be explained our sacrifices and martyrdoms. For no other reason did Rudolf Mendenhall flame out his soul for the cause and sing his wild swan song that last night of life. For no other reason did Hilbert die under torture, refusing to the last to betray his comrades. For no other reason has Anna Royalston refused blessed motherhood. For no other reason has John Carlson been the faithful and unrewarded custodian of the Glen Ellen Refuge. It does not matter. Young or old, man or woman, high or low, genius or clod, go where one will among the comrades of the revolution, the motor force will be found to be a great and abiding desire for the right. But I have run away from my narrative. Ernest and I well understood, before we left the refuge, how the strength of the Iron Heel was developing. The labor castes, the mercenaries, and the great hordes of secret agents and police of various sorts were all pledged to the oligarchy. 
In the main, and ignoring the loss of liberty, they were better off than they had been. On the other hand, the great helpless mass of the population, the people of the abyss, was sinking into a brutish apathy of content with misery. Whenever strong proletarians asserted their strength in the midst of the mass, they were drawn away from the mass by the oligarchs and given better conditions by being made members of the labor castes or of the mercenaries. Thus discontent was lulled and the proletariat robbed of its natural leaders. The condition of the people of the abyss was pitiable. Common school education, so far as they were concerned, had ceased. They lived like beasts in great squalid labor ghettos, festering in misery and degradation. All their old liberties were gone. They were labor slaves. Choice of work was denied them. Likewise was denied them the right to move from place to place, or the right to bear or possess arms. They were not land serfs like the farmers. They were machine serfs and labor serfs. When unusual needs arose for them, such as the building of the great highways and airlines, of canals, tunnels, subways, and fortifications, levies were made on the labor ghettos, and tens of thousands of serfs willy-nilly were transported to the scene of operations. Great armies of them are toiling now at the building of Ardis, housed in wretched barracks where family life cannot exist, and where decency is displaced by dull bestiality. In all truth, there in the labor ghettos is the roaring, abysmal beast the oligarchs fear so dreadfully. But it is the beast of their own making. In it they will not let the ape and tiger die. And just now the word has gone forth that new levies are being imposed for the building of Asgard, the projected wonder city that will far exceed Ardis when the latter is completed. Note, Ardis was completed in 1942 A.D. Asgard was not completed until 1984 A.D., it was fifty-two years in the building, during which time a permanent army of half a million serfs was employed. At times these numbers swelled to over a million, without any account being taken of the hundreds of thousands of the labor castes and the artists. We of the revolution will go on with that great work, but it will not be done by the miserable serfs. The walls and towers and shafts of that fair city will arise to the sound of singing, and into its beauty and wonder will be woven not sighs and groans, but music and laughter. Ernest was madly impatient to be out in the world and doing, for our ill-fated first revolt that had miscarried in the Chicago Commune was ripening fast. Yet he possessed his soul with patience, and during this time of his torment, when Hadley, who had been brought for the purpose from Illinois, made him over into another man, he revolved great plans in his head for the organization of the learned proletariat, and for the maintenance of at least the rudiments of education among the people of the abyss, all this, of course, in the event of the first revolt being a failure. Note, among the revolutionists were many surgeons, and in vivisection they attained marvellous proficiency. In Avis Everhard's words, they could literally make a man over. To them, the elimination of scars and disfigurements was a trivial detail. They changed the features with such microscopic care that no traces were left of their handiwork. The nose was a favourite organ to work upon. Skin grafting and hair transplanting were among their commonest devices. The changes in expression they accomplished were wizard-like. Eyes and eyebrows, lips, mouths and ears were radically altered. By cunning operations on tongue, throat, larynx, and nasal cavities, a man's whole enunciation and manner of speech could be changed. Desperate times give need for desperate remedies, and the surgeons of the revolution rose to the need. Among other things, they could increase an adult's stature by as much as four or five inches, and decrease it by one or two inches. What they did is, today, a lost art. We have no need for it. It was not until January 1917 that we left the refuge. All had been arranged. 
We took our place at once as agent provocateur in the scheme of the Iron Heel. I was supposed to be Ernest's sister. By oligarchs and comrades on the inside, who were high in authority, place had been made for us, and we were in possession of all necessary documents, and our pasts were accounted for. With help on the inside, this was not difficult, for in that shadow world of secret service, identity was nebulous. Like ghosts, the agents came and went, obeying commands, fulfilling duties, following clues, making their reports often to officers they never saw, or cooperating with other agents they had never seen before, and would never see again. End of chapter 21 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, mattsaw.org